Okay, so I'm here with Anthony Gregory of the Independent Institute uh, at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, one of the most uh, picturesque parts of, uh, parts of the Institute, actually. And uh, Anthony is actually getting ready to give his, uh, his presentation here in about an hour after lunch. Uh, can you uh, give us a brief synopsis, a uh, preview of what that's going to be like? Well, I did this paper on um, the uh, Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration and just kind of looking at troop levels and how much is being spent and how many people are dying. Um, and it's just uh, over kind of an overview of, of the uh, foreign policy uh, uh, c continuity from one presidency to the next because uh, there's 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 seems to be people know that Obama hasn't ended these wars but I don't think uh, there's much of a big big picture understanding of the continuity and so it, it just uh, touches on all of those types of questions all right sounds good looking forward to seeing that uh, so, both of us recently uh, wrote reviews of uh, Thaddeus Russell's book, uh, Renegade History of the U.S. Uh, so, what was, uh, you know, what, what was your big takeaway uh, from that? Uh, because there's so many different things that, you know, you could focus on, but what did you think was the, you know, the one, top two or three things that just reached out at you? Well, one, one of the basic uh, uh, points that I make is that if that if Thaddeus Russell is a leftist, uh, I hope I wish more leftists were like that. Because although I don't agree with him on all social questions or all political questions, uh, I'd say he's beyond iconoclastic in his uh, in in his lack of reverence for the official institutions of the state, as well as the most revered institutions in the more politically correct, uh, typical leftist and conservative readings of history. So that's a very broad point, but I was just... Well, basically, uh, his, whole, uh, his whole premise is that the, uh, the moral paragons that we've all been taught to look up to were you know, really kind of terrible people that like to oppress people for exercising true freedom. Right, right. And whether we're talking about conservative or liberal heroes, or in some cases libertarian heroes, you know, from from George Washington to FDR to Martin Luther King, he's very critical of these figures, and he he uh, he kind of his his basic thesis is that the real heroes of American history, who've expanded our liberty, um, as he defines it, which is different from our definition of liberty, but there's some overlap, uh, are the renegades, the uh, the forgotten people, the uh, outlaws, the prostitutes, the um, uh, the slaves who, who, uh, who, who, interestingly enough, were able to fight for liberty culturally, even within the horrible, uh, oppressive context of slavery. Uh, and he reclaims, and, and, and one thing I like about this is, you know, Howard Zinn claims to do this, but Zinn, whom I respect in some regards, I think isn't quite as radical because, you know, he looks at labor leaders, whereas Zinn or whereas Russell's more likely to question the the uh, sanctification of the official labor movement or the official civil rights movement. Right. He pra praises a lot of people that try not to labor, that uh, try to just spend all day uh, lazing around and doing a whole lot of nothing. Sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, he respects people's freedoms to do that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, one thing that jumped out at me uh, that I thought was especially interesting was that if you... Uh, 
one of the most integrated places in all of American history up until you know fairly recently was the Western Whorehouse. Sure. Uh, because you know that was the place most beyond government reach, right. and uh, and the West in general was far more integrated than either the South or the North because there was it, uh, at least a large part of it seemed to me that there wasn't as much government, and so there wasn't as much official segregation. And, and and he also points out, of course, in, in colonial America in in the North, um, I don't know if he'd say only the North, but he focuses on Philadelphia, where you have all of these uh, the taverns and the saloons were also more socially integrated, more racially integrated, where blacks and Indians and whites all intermingled, mostly at peace with one another. And uh, he points out that the official founding father types. Uh, they look down upon the common people, when in fact, as he argues, it was the common people fighting for liberty, and the founding, you know, the the, the merchant class or the the respectable class, um, had kind of a prohibitionist, puritanical side to them that ended up manifesting itself in in state policies later against uh, these freedoms of to drink, for example. Right, and the founding fathers were pretty much against any kind of uh, fun. I think uh, the, my favorite line maybe was uh, the Founding Fathers uh, discovered a way to make Americans think fun was bad. We call it democracy. Yes, <laughs> yes. I love how he questions democracy, um, Republican government, um, and you see this throughout uh, the, this book, which um, I think that some libertarians would, uh, if, if, if they'd have one major disagreement with him, it would be that yes, Liberty in a political context can mean that people have to control themselves and be more self-restrained, and that that's a good thing, or certainly not a bad thing. And um, I think that this is a valid uh, disagreement, and it's a very interesting disagreement. And I, I don't think I'm a pure, purely on Russell's side when it comes to these virtues. But he makes a strong case that what was considered, you know, the prostitutes of the 19th century who, who, who carried guns and who amassed wealth and who liberated women and the right to wear makeup and wear red dresses. Um, even socially, most conservatives today would, would have to concede at least a little bit, even to the purely cultural argument he's making. Yeah, and he points out that all the uh, the first ladies now have a red dress club, which you know a hundred years ago would have made them all considered to be prostitutes sure. uh, for wearing red dresses. And so, yeah, culturally, they've we owe a lot of our cultural freedoms that even conservatives claim to enjoy to people who were not conservatives at all. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, and. Uh, one other thing is that, you know, although uh, Russell does hold these people up as heroes, he does sort of hedge at the beginning and say, well, you know, if they were to ever take over, uh, the world would kind of fall apart. Uh, and so I'm not sure he's totally on their side all, at all times, but that's certainly the way it comes across in most of the book. Well, unlike the socialists, uh, Russell will root for the underdog, but he always seems to acknowledge that the second they're not the underdog anymore, they're not as worth rooting for. Whereas the, one of the big problems with socialism is it's saying, these people are the uh, underdog, so let's give them all the power. But, I mean, history has demonstrated that that is not only a flawed strategy for liberating workers, it can yield the worst uh, atrocities ever. 
So give uh, all the power to the peasants, and they'll go after the kulaks. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, uh, Russell, uh, um, I don't know exactly what kind of. Uh, uh, I guess he is a leftist of some sort. And certainly, the left would celebrate him, but he's not. He he's he's he. I think that his anti-state streak is quite strong. Um, the the new his chapter on the New Deal alone demonstrates uh, that he's very uh, he's very skeptical of of state power, even when it's wielded supposedly on the behalf of the, the, the poor and so forth. Yeah, the, the title of that was uh, The New Deal, Behold a Dictator. Yes, Fascism and, Comes to America or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and it basically outlines how all the similarities and acknowledged similarities between the New Deal and Italian fascism and Nazism. That they actually were in some cases purposefully pulling off the same traditions and knew that. Uh, so... And, one one thing I really like as a as a big anti-war guy, I think that um, I, I'm sick of all the glorification of World War II. And although I don't want to disparage, I'm not saying that people who fight in wars never do it for what they think to be moral reasons, or we shouldn't acknowledge that their sacrifice is a real one. Um, he points out that uh, as much as people like to say that you know Black Americans were so patriotic for fighting World War II, he points out that black Americans were more likely to desert and not want to fight. And I think that that all the much better for the black Americans, right? I mean, this is... I mean, the country was not treating them well. Why? No, it's, uh, of course. I, I can totally sympathize with why would you want to fight for a country that treats you terribly? It sure. uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, so uh, let's kind of move on, shift gears a little bit. Uh, last year you gave a paper here on uh, the writs of habeas corpus. And uh, now typically libertarians think of uh, writs of habeas corpus as being a good thing as a sort of check on executive power. There's a train passing in the background right now which is making things a bit difficult. But, uh, uh, all right. Uh, so a writ of habeas corpus would, would require a king or a president or whomever that has uh, imprisoned somebody to then either produce that person and let them free or bring charges against them, correct? Is that basically... Uh, that's that's basically it. The, the writ, uh, habeas corpus, I, I, by the way, the, at the Independent Institute, I've, uh, I've, I'm wrapping up a, an entire book on the subject of habeas corpus. And uh, we all, as libertarians and civil liberties uh, advocates, tend to look at this as a very important due process right, maybe the most important. But it's got a dark side because, yes, it's a government power. It's the power of a judge, usually, to tell an, some custodian or someone holding someone in a jail cell, usually, these generally speaking, uh, you know, to, to bring the, the, the person forth or more commonly just to justify the detention in some way. So it's a way of one branch of government, if we want to look at them as branches, this is more of an American thing than an English thing, questioning the detention of another arm of government. And uh, th this sounds like a, a completely good thing, and there's a, a, a certainly I think if someone is in a government cage, anything that can question the legitimacy uh, I'm against the state, and I'm against the detention power, and I certainly don't think innocent people should be detained. And uh, I would say that if someone who's innocent is detained, uh, I'm for any any uh, procedural safeguard to, to get them out, because uh, what's worse than being detained if you're innocent? 
But on the other hand, because it's a, a government power, it's got a dark side. It was it's, it was used to defend the government. The government would uh, so, some the state governments might say that we're going to jail a federal official for imposing a tax, which is kind of a revolutionary thing. And the central government would say, you can't do that. We're going to use habeas corpus to free our tax collectors. And, and there are even much worse examples of it being used against liberty. For example, uh, before the Civil War, it was used to, to, to protect slavery, where slave owners would use habeas corpus to retrieve their slaves um, from being free in some cases. Because it's a very, it's because it's a government power. It's inherently a double-edged sword at best, and uh, it's also one of the, my main points in the book and in the, that paper was that um, it, in America it used to be a more decentralist tool where state courts could uh, question federal detentions, and that's been completely turned on its head. And I'd like to reclaim that that legacy of decentralist radicalism. So uh, that's is uh, that sort of the way you would like to reform habeas corpus, or what? What would you like to see happen to make it a instead of a tool of government power, a tool of uh, you know the people to use against the government? Well, ultimately, I think that because I think that any uh, any government official or non-government official should have a right to question a detention, but that sounds a little utopian, right? But anything that moves us in the direction. Of uh, empower of of taking a, of of compromising the detention power, I admit in this book it kind of takes a while to prove to justify my credibility on this question because in law you really need to show that you understand all the details and stuff. But I'm willing to admit that my purpose, and I think that the extent of habeas corpus is admirable. Its purpose, the good side, has always been to achieve the end result of justice and specifically to keep the state from detaining people without cause and um, so anything that broadens that and yeah giving the states the power over the feds is a, a radical proposal that I think is not just constitutional but I think it's unconstitutional to take it away and I explain that though I think the constitution eroded habeas corpus I think that I think that we need to question the detention power so um, the book, ultimately, my conclusions are quite radical because I say habeas corpus leads to some incoherencies in interpreting the doctrine of state detention power, and ultimately I seek to overthrow the state, and uh, I'm willing to come out and say that, but, but I'm also willing to entertain any reforms in the, in the libertarian direction. Sounds good. Uh, so when uh, when do you think uh, when are you planning to have that released, or do you know yet? Um, it's unclear exactly right now. It seems like uh, maybe in about a year it should be released. It takes time. We're still in a a peer review process, looking for co-publishers, um, and I'm eager to get it out. It, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the the manuscript's probably not in its completely final draft, though it's very close. I, I hope and I believe so. I would look for it in, in 2012 sometime. All right. Uh, that sounds good. And I, I know how that peer review process goes. It's sort of like sending something into a black hole and hoping that something uh, comes out of it eventually. But uh, we, we shall see. But uh, I uh, hope that comes out soon and we will look forward to it. Well, thanks. Uh, great talking to you, Anthony. And uh, give a great presentation here. Thanks, John. It's great. It's great talking to you. And uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, thanks for uh, thanks for the interview. 
Hey, no problem. We'll have to do it again sometime. Awesome. Uh, thanks uh, to everyone listening, and goodbye.